Good morning. Um, a reminder, I, I want to be sure and remind those of you at home watching over Zoom to go up to the right-hand corner and make sure your screen is on speaker view because we're going to be looking closely today at a painting um, and asking the Holy Spirit to interact with each one of us as we examine this painting. Let's turn to Mark chapter 4. Very familiar passage um, where Jesus and the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee and starting in verse 35. The word of the Lord says, And on that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was in the boat. The other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Father, we ask you to anoint this time that we spend in your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to us in quiet but profound ways about each of our lives. Um, According to your will, Lord, let it be in Jesus' name. Well, we're going to look at uh, Rembrandt's painting called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and um, not not moving. Testing, testing. Yes, there we go. This painting has a fascinating history. It was uh, painted by Rembrandt in 1633. And it's valued um, at $100 million to priceless. So I guess $100 million is sort of the base price or the least that you could expect uh, it to be sold for. It is uh, done in a particular um, style called uh, chiaroscuro. And um, this is a type of painting um, that was... uh, common or, or appreciated in Rembrandt's time where there's a lot of interplay between light and darkness, light and shadows. Um, it was in a museum in Boston uh, in 1990 when it, along with 12 or 13 other paintings it was stolen in the middle of the night. 
two police officers, supposed police officers, came to the security guard in the middle of the night and said, we have a warrant out for your arrest. Uh, we Stand up. And uh, when the security guard stood up, they cuffed him and then uh, proceeded to uh, immobilize him and make off with all of the paintings. Interestingly, it has not been found to this day. Um, and there is a $10 million reward. So you might start looking. Uh, who knows what's in your attic or underneath your floors? Um, so looking at this painting, we'll take a closer look at it here in a minute, but um, I've been thinking about, of course, as we all have, what a crazy year it's been. Um, we see here a wave crashing against the boat, and for us this year it's been wave after wave after wave, hasn't it? Uh, of course, the, the um, pestilence and then also the uh, contested election and uh, riots in the streets. I heard this week that there have been more hurricanes this year than ever recorded in history. Um, it makes you think of some of the prophetic scriptures that Jesus talked about. And then in our own personal lives, um, Jim has mentioned several times that he's never uh, experienced a season where individuals in our body are facing so many storms, so many challenges, so many afflictions. Um, Gordon used to say to Laura, my Laura, that she was at the top one of the top on his affliction prayer list, uh, which was fun. We appreciated that very much. And uh, Gordon, we want you to know that you will now be among the top on our affliction prayer list. Let's be sure and really, really pray every day for our brother. Have you ever noticed that in the midst of storms and shakings that in the Word God seems to ask these epic rhetorical questions? Now just to refresh your memory, rhetorical means it's a question that isn't really meant to be answered back to the questioner. It's, uh, it's a question to make a point or a question to get us to examine ourselves. Let me give you some examples from Scripture. Here are five that came to my mind. The first one was to Adam and Eve. Uh, after they had sinned, God is walking through the garden, and he says to them, where are you? Now, on the surface, he was actually looking for them. Where are you guys? But on another level, he was asking, where are you? Where are you now? Um, it's different than where you were before. A second one is to Andrew, a disciple of John, who 
is considering Jesus after John sort of uh, uh, exalted Jesus as the Savior of the world, Andrew began to turn toward Jesus, wondering if uh, this has been my master, but maybe this should be my master. And uh, to uh, to, to Andrew, Jesus said in the first chapter of John, what are you seeking? Uh, now let that let that sink down and be kind of a an epic question in your heart. What are you seeking? These questions just hang in the air, don't they? And then to Elijah, you remember Elijah had that power encounter confrontation with the um, priests of of Baal, and uh, it was an incredibly powerful event. And when it was over, he was, he was exhausted. He was, even though he had the victory, he was devastated. And it says in, in uh, 2 Kings that he wanted to die. And um, an angel came and ministered to him and told him to, that he would need it for a journey. And he travels to a cave. And he's just kind of hanging out in this cave. And God comes to him and says, what are you doing here? Or maybe the emphasis was, what are you doing here? Or what are you doing? You know, depending on how you think about this question, but in any case, to me, it's one of those rhetorical, epic questions of God. What are you doing here, now? And then to the disciples in the storm in our text, where is your faith? How is it that you have no faith? And then to Peter on the beach after Jesus had been crucified, but before he ascended, he appeared to the disciples in his resurrected form, and, um, and, uh, or his risen form, and said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Basically three times. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? And it's considered the restoration of Peter because he had denied Christ and uh, needed to be restored. I want to bring these questions to Rembrandt's painting this morning and ask you to look for yourself in the picture. Um, See if you identify with any of the characters in the painting. Um, Sometimes, well, in my case, um, my eyes went immediately to one character, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But before we examine this amazing painting in that way, I would like to just look at it sort of in a general sense and ask or or point out things about the painting. First of all, it's easy to see uh, that the, the boat is in distress. First of all, I apologize that I had to stretch this slide out side to side. It's not quite proportional, but I wanted you to see all that's going on in the painting. 
So the boat is in distress. The mainsail is being torn from top to bottom. Uh, I called Jerry Dunn because Jerry uh, uh, has a ca- his captain status as a, sail- as a sailor. And I asked Jerry, Jerry, what's going on with the, the rigging on this ship? And what, what, what's actually happening? Because I didn't trust some of the things that I was reading. And Jerry said that a standing rigging line has broken off and is flying in the wind. You can see that there. That line was attached firmly to the side of the boat initially, but it has let go. Jerry said the, uh, the mast is at risk of breaking, and if so, all control of the boat would be lost. You can see a giant wave is overtaking the boat. You might, you might notice sort of metaphorically or figuratively that the mast and the boom form a cross. Uh, in the left forefront of the picture, there's a round what appears to be a rock, like there may be rocks uh, out in front of the boat. Right in the center, and you may not be able to see this very clearly, but there is a shadowy figure um, nestled in what might be the hold of the boat. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll see him a little bit later. And um, also, there are 14 souls, individuals, not counting the shadowy figure. There are 14 people in the boat, which with 12 disciples and Jesus, you would think there should just be 13. But Rembrandt al- often painted himself into his his paintings. And so we'll see more about that. And then finally, I want you to notice that the sky is opening up and there's a blue patch. And from that, there are rays of light coming down behind the boat. Just some general interesting things about this painting. So now let's go to a a better picture of the boat, and I want to ask you, I'm going to not talk for a minute, and I want you to just examine the different figures and see if you identify with any of them. How many of you, your eyes immediately went to some, someone, and you said, that's me right now? Anybody? James. I'll give you a minute more. How many of you have picked someone that you think, okay, that, that's close to me or that is me? Um, when I was shown this uh, a month or so ago, uh, my eyes immediately rested on the individual who's hanging on to the sail uh, at the bottom of the mast. His hair is flying back. Do you see him? And I thought, that is me. Um, this is a man who is losing control. <laughs> and uh, I projected upon him a lot of anger. I immediately was in touch that 
I feel like I'm losing control and I'm angry about it. Um, and uh, he's trying to fix it. He's trying to exert control. Notice that his back is to Jesus. He's not even looking at Jesus. It's all about his own strength, his own will, his own resources. Probably one of the, one, probably a professional fisherman, very capable, and yet he is just straining to hold that sail in place or to hold the mast. I said to Laura recently, Laura, I think I'm getting depressed. And she said, I don't see depression, I see anger. And uh, I've noticed lately that everything in my house is breaking. And uh, it's a good thing because I am frenetically fixing things, I think, to satisfy that desire to control something, you know, going on around me. Um, let's, let's look even closer and uh, let me tell you sort of my impression of each of the figures. And if it differs from yours, if you pick the figure that I'm talking about, but your interpretation of that figure is completely different, stick with yours. Uh, that's the Holy Spirit talking to you. So the first one I want to talk about is the man in the very bow of the ship. Uh, I suspect he's a strong man, a leader, a worker. He seems unafraid, even maybe enjoying the storm. Uh, you see how his legs are crossed, and uh, he's got both hands, he's doing what he knows to do. Uh, one author said, perhaps he's an adventurer who loves challenges. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And then the three around the mast. Uh, these are called by some interpreters the fixers. They're capable. Uh, you don't see any emotion necessarily on their faces, probably they are professional fishermen. Uh, can't make too much of them, uh, although I made an awful lot of that one guy, didn't I? But um, I'd like you to look at the oldest man there for a moment. And um, he... Uh, caught my attention as really an interesting um, portrait there. Uh, I wondered if he, he's got his back to the wave, his expression is somewhat um, uh, unconcerned, I, I would say. It's like he's been in a lot of storms maybe in his life, and uh, this is just one more. And uh, I wonder, I guess the word resignation came to mind, or perhaps sadness. Like he's seen so many storms that this is just one more. And if God takes my life, he takes my life. Um, I don't really care. Almost that kind of um, place. And I thought of this verse in Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Um, I'm approaching 65, but I can, all, I can all already feel that tug of, of 
not delighting in life anymore. It's small, but um, I can sense it sometimes. Let's look at the one, uh, the one in the foreground hanging on with one hand to a standing rigging. And um, he's got a knife in his belt, doesn't he? And that long uh, stick alongside him or beside him is a harpoon of some kind or a gaff. Um, I think this is a warrior, a fighter. Um, probably Rembrandt was depicting Simon the Zealot here. Um, I imagine he was usually fearless, but in this kind of storm, uh, maybe he's feeling way out of his wheelhouse because he's got one hand like this as if he wants to hold back the wave. And uh, maybe you can relate to that, that in many ways you are fearless, but perhaps there's something, a wave, in which you have no idea how to fight. You have no idea what to do. Um, so his left hand, maybe he's trying to hold back the wave, Maybe he's reaching out to grab the rigging along with his other hand. We don't know. Now, let's go to the stern of the boat. A um, lot, of, lot of personalities and characters here, but I want to start with the man in white um, who's just sitting. He's not looking at the storm. He's not looking at the waves. He's not looking at the other disciples. Um, he seems to be staring at this apparition, uh, this mysterious figure that is across from him. He seems unaware of the storm, what's going on in the back of the boat. I wonder if he is, is he shut down? Has he just shut down? You know what I mean? By shut down, he's just uh, checked out and gone somewhere else. Or perhaps because he's looking at this mysterious figure in the middle, perhaps he's some kind of mystic who's looking for answers um, more ethereal than most of us do. I don't know. Jump across the back of the boat and look at the man in back who seems to be the epitome of terrified. Do you see him? He's got his shoulders are hunched, and uh, he seems to be looking at the coming wave, uh, not fighting but cowering. He wants to get away as far away on the ship as he can from that coming wave. He's not looking at Jesus either. He's possibly paralyzed with fear and anxiety and reco recoiling from the oncoming wave. And now, if you would, look at the two that are engaged with Jesus. They're in his face, so to speak. Um, and we know that they were questioning him in a critical way, finding fault with him. They were saying, do you not even care that we are perishing? One even has his hand on him uh, as if to grab him and, and demand his attention with the situation at hand. Three guys, 
These guys are rebuking Jesus. They're arguing with him, questioning his love for them. Then in the foreground, there's the disciple who is hanging over the side. And this disciple is just plain sick. He's nauseated. Uh, he's throwing up, perhaps. Maybe he's not even afraid. He's just sick. And uh, sometimes with the waves that crash over us in our lives, we're not afraid of them. We're just, we're just sick with grief and sadness and despair over what we're experiencing. Um, so, so much so that we can sometimes feel physically sick. Now look at the man at the tiller. Is this Peter? Maybe? A leader? Uh, what I want you to notice is he has big, strong hands. I want you to notice that his leg muscles are straining. He's straining to control the ship. And yet, where's his gaze? His gaze is also on Jesus. And there seems to be uh, some tension there. Perhaps he's torn between trusting in Jesus and trusting in his own strength. Any of us ever been there? Trusting in Jesus or trusting in our own strength. And then there's the man in blue hanging on to the ship's rope in the foreground. His back is to the, uh, the man in white. And uh, he's looking out to what? At first, we would say to nothing. I mean, he's not looking at the storm. He's not looking at Jesus. He's not looking at the other disciples. What is he looking at? And uh, the probable answer is us. This is Rembrandt painting in himself. He's got one hand on his head, or actually a hat. And he's, this individual is looking at us. Uh, and maybe asking these questions, these epic rhetorical questions of God. Where are you? What are you doing here? What are you speaking? And so on. Where is your faith? And then I want you to notice that in the center of all this is a man kneeling in prayer. Notice that he is not paying attention to the storm. He's not paying attention to the voices or reactions of the other disciples. He's not watching hours and hours of Fox News or MSNBC. There's a band of light around his head, a halo if you will. And I think by this, Rembrandt probably is sending the message that this is the best posture, to be in a posture of prayer and worship, quiet trust, waiting on God, and abiding in Christ in the midst of the great storms of life. It reminds me of the story of Martha and Mary where Martha was angry because Mary wasn't helping her serve the Lord and his friends. And um, let me read verses 38 through 42 of Luke 10. 
They were traveling along. He entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Isn't that interesting? Do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that I'm doing all this work and lazy Mary is just sitting there listening to you? But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. And Mary has chosen the good part, or I assume he means that one thing which shall not be taken away from her. And finally, the last figure is Jesus. Notice he's listening to the disciples' rebuke. He doesn't have an expression of anger on his face. Instead, we see light emanating from his head. And he seems to be looking at the light behind the wave. That could be a good sermon title right there. The light behind the wave. Isn't that good? So maybe Jesus is looking at the two disciples who are talking to him, but I like to think that he's looking beyond them to the light and ask and, and that thought, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only do what I see the Father doing. And responding to that light. One author writes this, Jesus wasn't just in the boat, he was in his Father's arms. He wasn't just in the storm, he was in the kingdom of God. He was at peace in the storm because he trusted his Father to care for them no matter what happened. This is the hidden miracle of the gospel story and it's why after Jesus calmed the storm, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Jesus was being sincere. If they learned to live with him and the Father in the kingdom of God, then they wouldn't be afraid, even in a terrible storm. Jesus is the only person on the boat who seems to see the source of light in the heavens. And the light is not only coming from the heavens, but also emanating from his body. Let's go back to the scene again. And let me ask you again, the five epic rhetorical questions. Where are you? What are you seeking? What are you doing now and here? Where is your faith? And do you love me? You know, in our text, Jesus really only asks two questions or makes, uh, yeah, two questions. And the first is, why are you so timid? And the second is, how is it that you have no faith? Let's change those questions into statements. If Jesus had made a statement of those questions or a command, they would be called an imperative. Um, So the first one might be something like, be brave or take courage, um, fortify 
yourself. And then the second would be something like, get some faith uh, or strengthen your faith. Let's talk about the first question now turned into a statement, be brave. I think of Joshua chapter 1 where the Lord exhorts Joshua to be brave and to be strong. Let me read three of them to you or, or some of them. The Lord says to Joshua, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Have I not commanded you, in verse 9, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In the New Testament we read that I will never leave you or forsake you. So Jesus, God, is saying that to us. So this morning and in this season of wave after wave after wave, I think the Lord is saying to us, be brave. Take courage. Take courage. Be strong and very courageous. Let me ask, are we brave enough to stop fighting for control over the storm? Am I brave enough to stop trying to control the things I can't control? Are we brave enough to not check out or shut down? Are we brave enough to not let fear master us? Are we brave enough to not grow sick with grief and depression and despair? Are you brave enough to continue to abide in Christ and worship at His feet in the midst of the storm? To stay in faith and not walk by sight? Even to trade all our sorrows for the joy of the Lord? Are we brave enough? And then the Lord is saying with that second question, now turn to statement, strengthen your faith. You guys remember David who the Scriptures say he strengthened himself in the Lord. You remember that? After Ziklag's armies had come and taken away his wife and children and all his uh, mighty men of valor, all their families, livestock, everything, and the men... His mighty men were so mad at him that they were starting to turn on him. And the Scriptures say that he strengthened himself in the Lord. We remember Abraham who, though he was a hundred years old, uh, he believed God when God told him he would have a son. The Scriptures say he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Fully assured that what God had promised God was able also to perform. We remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown by Nebuchadnezzar into the fiery furnace. And uh, how they said, uh, we will not bow down, O king. Uh, Our God is able to deliver us. But if not, but if not, uh, we will not bow down. And what what was their reward Uh, 
A few verses later we read, Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He responded and said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, Certainly it was, O king. He answered and said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Oh my goodness. Our reward for faith is the presence of the fourth man. As Oral Roberts preached that famous sermon on the fourth man in every book in the Bible. We remember that without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For those who come to God must believe that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Do you believe God is a rewarder of those who seek Him? Yeah. We need to seek Him. We remember that faith is simply believing the promises of God and He has promised us peace in the midst of the storms of this world. He said, My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. I don't give to you as the world gives to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In this world you have tribulation, but take courage, He says, for I have overcome the world. One last thing I want to say or ask Did Jesus rebuke the disciples for their lack of faith because they were afraid? I really don't think so. You know, there's approximately 150 exhortations in the Scriptures where God is talking to man and saying, do not fear, do not be afraid. He knows we're fearful creatures. Uh, And maybe I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't see fear as a sin. I just see it as a condition of man that God is sensitive to and constantly telling us, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Um, Maybe he rebuked them because they didn't rebuke the wind and the waves. Well, I don't really think that's it either. Um, At that point, Certainly, they were just getting started in their ministry with Jesus. Perhaps he was just ticked off that they woke him up. And he'd had a hard day. He was tired. He just wanted to sleep. In our house, when the kids were growing up, you didn't want to wake up Esther. That was bad. That was a bad scene, wasn't it, Anna? Uh, No, it's deeper than that, isn't it? Um, Let me try to give words to what I think Jesus uh, was at the core of why Jesus was admonishing them. First, we know that they questioned His love for them, which is the same temptation that Satan approached Eve with in the garden. Did God say, well, certainly He's holding back from you, He must not love you, right? That was the logic of the temptation. Um, He basically planted in Eve's mind what's known as FOMO, right? 
the fear of missing out. I, I struggle with that a lot. Perhaps more so, though, he chastised their faith because they didn't yet grasp the majesty of the one who's in the boat with them. I'm, I'm certain that we here today, even knowing all we know and having seven Bibles at home and coming to church every Sunday, I don't know, I'm certain that we don't know the majesty of the one who's in our boats, who's in our lives, who's in our storms, who's helping us with wave after wave after wave. He was in their boat. They had nothing to fear, whether he was asleep or awake. There is absolutely nothing to fear. And Jesus Christ, the living God, who triumphed over death and rose from the dead, He is in your boat today. Whatever you're facing, He is in your boat. And I say, let us rejoice and be glad. For He is the one who sticks closer than a brother. He's the one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's the one who overcame the world, who loves us with a steadfast love. He separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. He says, I will renew your strength and will cause you to mount up with wings like an eagle, to run and not grow weary, to walk and not faint. We don't know, nor did they, the majesty of the one who is in their boat. And last, I think he rebuked them because they didn't understand the radical commitment he had already made to them in his heart. They, they didn't honor the deep connection that they unknowingly had with him, the deep fellowship, the sharing of his very divine essence that he had in store for them. It's a connection, it's a fellowship, it's an abiding, it's a koinonia. It's Him in us and us in Him. We are in the same boat. There's a sharing of mutual life together in Christ that we enjoy with Him today. Eventually, the disciples would go to horrible deaths with that peace and that knowing and that security. Uh, they were not frightened in those moments. So I very simply, I want to tell you this morning that Jesus is in your boat. Don't fear the storm. Jesus is in your boat. Don't fear the storm. He's the light behind the wave. He is the light behind the wave. Don't fear the storm. Be brave. Take courage. Be strong and very courageous. Because Jesus is in your boat, and even better, we are in His boat. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for this incredible painting by Rembrandt that is so open-ended. And I pray that Your Holy Spirit has put something in each heart from this painting that will be like a pebble in a shoe. It will just keep, keep, uh, keep alive in our minds 
We ask you to help us turn away from the fear of the waves and put our eyes upon you. We pray that we would be that one in the bow who is, as Chuck Ferret used to say, working at full efficiency in a relaxed state of faith. We pray we'd be the one at your feet, praying and waiting upon you, trusting in you, um, not looking at the storm, not looking at the voices or listening to all the voices, not arguing with you or uh, critiquing you, but simply resting in you, knowing that the day of deliverance will come. That our God is a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. I give you this word, Lord. I ask that it would bear eternal fruit in our hearts and souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Good encouragement, amen. He who has begun a good work in your boat will be faithful <laughs> to complete it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Help us to remember the encouragement that we've heard today, to remember this picture and the meaning that goes with it. Help us, Lord, to know that you loved all of these men in whatever state they were in when this painting depicted them. All of them grew, and all of us will grow as we stay connected to the vine. Thank you, Lord, for this good word, and I pray that you would strengthen us, that we might strengthen each other. In Jesus' name, amen. We are dismissed.